ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದ ಉಪದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕ ಕಾರಣ ನಮ್ಯಹಂ we were on verse 58 we saw last time a very important verse 57 where an important fact was mentioned the world though it appears and though it is all relative usage empirical dealings transactions can continue still it's not real you actually experience it and you can use things there you can drive a car and you can uh, uh, drink water and satisfy thirst everything works and yet it's not real how is that possible the example that was given was the dream world the experience of your dreams uh, do you remember uh, remember the verse number 56 that was verse number 56 a very important verse just as in a dream world in our dreams we see it we see people we see things uh, you may feel thirst and there is water and dream thirst is satisfied by dream water but when you wake up the whole thing is a dream so it is seen it is experienced and it works and yet it's it's not real this is important because people have many different kinds of ideas about enlightenment one idea is that when you are enlightened this world won't appear to you you will maybe you will see something else or um you will be you'll see only light or something like that something quite different will uh, will appear to you no the experience of the world will continue exactly like this if you've got eyes you will see forms if you've got ears you'll hear sounds if a mind you will think thoughts but you will you will be able to ascertain the unreality of it all and the reality of of the of brahman existence consciousness place this will be ascertained this is enlightenment it's a shift it's a paradigm shift a shift of your world view of your spiritual world view your whole idea of what you are will change and what this world world is will change completely that is enlightenment in advaita vedanta at least now to illustrate that the author shankaracharya in his verse number 57 gave the example of our three states of our mind waking dreaming deep sleep he pointed out that um when waking comes when we wake up there is neither dream nor deep sleep and when we fall asleep the waking world is completely forgotten and we dream there's a dream world and soon the dream world ceases deep sleep neither waking nor nor dreaming and from deep sleep we awaken again to waking and deep sleep goes away the three states are mutually exclusive the three states waking dreaming and deep sleep what we experience there 
in each state is separate. Here is your waking world. This you do not experience when you fall asleep. If you don't pay attention to Vedanta, that danger is always there. You can easily fall asleep. Occupational hazard. When you fall asleep, this world will disappear. And a world of dreams will come before you, which is not here, which you are not experiencing now. What you experience in the dreams and what you experience in this waking world, they're two different things. And in deep sleep, no, no objects, no distinct objects are experienced. Just a blankness. What does this prove? Two things. The first is, it proves that you, the experiencer, are not limited by the states. The same one who experienced the waking world is the same one who experiences the dream world, is the same one who experiences the darkness of deep sleep. The states come and go, the worlds come and go before you, but you, the experiencer, you are common to all of them. When the waking world disappears into sleep, you do not go with it. You keep on experiencing. The consciousness which experiences all of this is separate from these states. That's number one. This consciousness is your real nature. That's the first fallout, the first implication. This body is not your real nature. How do you know that? Well, this body does not follow you into your dreams. You see, this body, where will it be when you are dreaming? When you are dreaming, the body is safe and sleeping on, on your bed. But you may be walking uh, out there on the streets in the cold out there in your dream. So, you, you the conscious, follow this carefully, you the conscious experiencing entity, you are still there in a dream because after all, something is experiencing the dream. You the conscious entity is experiencing the dream. But that conscious entity is no longer experiencing itself as this body. It's experiencing itself as some projected dream body. And when the dream disappears into deep sleep, that conscious entity that is claimed in Vedanta, that's still there. Not experiencing a waking world, not experiencing a dream world, but experiencing the blankness of deep sleep. That conscious entity is one and the same. It continues throughout. That's the real you, not the body. Are you with me so far? And even the mind is not the real you. The waker's mind and the dreamer's mind and the deep sleep, no mind. In deep sleep, there's no thinking. And yet that conscious entity continues, that, that consciousness continues in waking, dreaming and deep sleep. So it is apart from the mind, it is apart from the body. In the waking, it is experienced, it is using the body and mind. In a dream also, the mind is functional, though, though it's not aware of the body. And in, in deep sleep, it's aware of neither the body nor the mind. It's still there by itself. That's the real you. The mind and the body are like dresses you put on. The mind is like the vest you put on and the, and the body is like the, the shirt you put on over the vest. So the first fallout of this analysis is that you are not the body and not the mind. But that we have already seen. You see, when we were studying all of this till now, I told you the study has been done in two stages. One stage is separating the real self from the not self. Atma from anatma. And we saw from the beginning till the 50s, till the, I think the 40th verse or so, we saw how the Atma is consciousness, self, and the um, body and mind are not the, uh, not the self. So we, we realized that 
we are not the body mind we are not the body mind we are the witness of the body mind that was one separation of the self and the not self separation in what sense separation in the sense of understanding your first of all your whole conception our conception about what we are that has to change for the next stage to work in the next stages the second stage where non duality is established you have sep- we have separated the self and the not self the self is seen to be consciousness and the not self all the objects of consciousness including body and mind so that's the first stage in the second stage the not self is realized to be false it's realized to be not a separate entity apart from the self i'll repeat that the not self is realized to be false what do you mean by false not an independent entity apart from the self if it's not a second entity apart from the self the not self in that case what we are establishing not second no two non duality advaita that's what's going on now from now on what we have been doing in the last few few classes is we are having understood ourselves as a witness consciousness everything else in the universe from the mind to the body to the external universe everything is to be resolved back into the witness consciousness resolved back is one way of putting it basically what i'm saying is everything is to be understood as being not apart from the witness consciousness one good way of understanding this is in our dreams suppose i'm dreaming and i dream a dream that i'm walking down the street here i can see the buildings i can see the road i can see the cars i can see my own body but suppose somebody comes and tells me it's a dream you are on in your bed and dreaming and this whole thing that you see including you that person that body all of this is nothing apart from the dreamer's mind all of it is false because it's being it's being um, imagined in the dreamer's mind it's being dreamt in the dreamer's mind all this is nothing but the mind of the dreamer it may seem weird then but when i wake up it will seem true yes manhattan the buildings and the sky and the, uh, and the people including my own body they were nothing but my mind the dreamer's mind projecting all of it exactly like that right now in this waking state all that we are experiencing we are experiencing in awareness that bears repetition everything that we are experiencing is being experienced in our awareness it has no existence apart from that awareness either you are with me and you've been following vedanta very closely and you're perfectly all right with me or you're not following there should be protests at this point yeah. a philosophically acute person would say are you uh, batting for subjective idealism are you saying it's all in our minds or i don't understand how all this can be there's nothing other than consciousness here for two things to be separate i've i've said this earlier to prove that two things are separate how do we know two things are separate when they are experienced together you cannot see them you cannot understand they are separate that this cloth is separate from me you to to know that you must experience the cloth apart from me and me apart from the cloth then you know the, these two things are separate though they are appearing together now 
if the world, the universe experienced in your awareness and your awareness are two separate things, then you should be able to experience the universe apart from your awareness, which is, which is in fact logically impossible. There is no experience possible apart from awareness. Is this room, does it exist apart from your awareness? You'll say yes. How? Well, you might say, well, it, I might not see it. I'll go out, but the other people will be there and they will see it in their awareness. So, so it exists apart from my awareness. But ah, two answers to that. First of all, when you say my awareness, Vedanta says you are the awareness, whether in that body or in this body or any body. One. Second, when you say all the other people are experiencing this universe, whether I experience it or not, but the other people are also experienced by in you in your awareness. Those other people around you, they don't exist except for you, except for in your experience. And no experience is possible without awareness. So, so it goes. That's how we have been arguing. And uh, now he says, in verse number 58, let's come to verse number 58. Trayam evam bhavin mitya, trayam evam bhavin mitya, gunatraya vinirmitam, gunatraya vinirmitam, asya drashta gunatito, asya drashta gunatito, nityo hekashchidatmakaha, nityo hekashchidatmakaha. These three, which three? Waking, dreaming, deep sleep, are appearances. Appearances in what? Appearances in your, in your consciousness, or in you the consciousness. These three are appearances, mithya, appearance, false. And their contents, here is the dream world, here is the waking world. And the contents are all of these people and the chairs and the hall. All of these are appearances. Bhaved mithya. Why? Gunatraya vinirmitam. Because they are constituted of the three gunas. Sattva, rajas, tamas. We have studied long back, I think, that sattva, rajas, tamas are the constituents of maya. The constituents of maya. Maya itself is made of sattva, rajas, tamas. And the, all the products of maya are made of sattva, rajas, tamas. And they have no existence. Maya has no existence. Apart from its, uh, apart from its foundation, its adhara, its its uh, ground, which is Brahman. Are these terms making sense to you? By now, we must be familiar with these terms. Maya has no existence apart from Brahman, just as the dream has no existence apart from the dreamer's mind. This world is constituted of maya, and this maya has no exist existence apart from you, the consciousness, Brahman. So, all the products of maya, which, which are the furniture with which we furnish our waking world, our dream world, and the absences which we call our, our deep sleep world, all of that, they are maya and hence they are false. And what is real? What is real? Asya Drashta, the experiencer of all of these, the one which experiences the waking world, 
the one which experiences the, the dream world and the one which experiences the darkness of the deep sleep world. The one before which the, these three rotate in unending succession. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep and again waking, dreaming, deep sleep. That one, not the three states, but the one to which the three states appear. That witness, which is you. Yes, we're talking about you. You are the truth. You remember the story of King Janaka who um, dreamt that he lost a big battle and he was defeated. And then he woke up shaking and trembling on his bed. And then he asked whether that was true or this is true. Whether this waking world in which I am an undefeated king or the dream world in nightmare in which I was defeated. Which one is true? Is that true or this true? And the sage um, Ashtavakra came to his court and said, neither that is true nor this is true. Because, same reason, this was not there in the dream. Your undefeated status as a king and emperor was not there in the dream. And in the dream, in that nightmare, um, what happened, the defeat and the terrible uh, suffering, that's not here also. Neither this was in the dream, nor the dream is here now. So they mutually cancel each other out. Neither that is true, nor this is true. Then the king asks, is nothing true? And the sage, if you remember... He said, did, did you experience that dream? Yes. And are you experiencing this waking? Yes. So what's the one constant in all of these experiences? You, the experiencing consciousness. That is true. Neither this is true, nor that is true. But you, the experiencer, king, you are the truth. But you meaning, not the body. Not the person. But the experiencing consciousness to which all of this appears. So, Asya Dashta, the witness of the waking, the witness of the dream, and the witness of the deep sleep. Gunatita. It transcends the three gunas, Sattva, Rajas, Tamas. It transcends Maya. It is not bound by the three gunas. One way in which the three states are understood as products of gunas, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Waking is said to be a product of, uh, it's heavily influenced by Sattva. Dream is influenced by rajas and deep sleep by tamas. In what sense? Because sattva is connected to knowledge. In waking we actually gain new knowledge. We see. We think and we experience things and we generate knowledge. And in dream, that very thing is rehashed. That knowledge, that experience which we had in the waking stage, that is used to generate our like movies, you know, like pictures. They are strung together in our dreams. And so we have experiences based on what we collected in the waking state. That's rajas. And deep sleep, it, the equation is very simple. Tamas means a darkness, a, a dull, in, uh, inert, uh, non-moving, not knowingness. So these three states, in the waking, sattva predominates, in the dream, rajas predominates, and in deep sleep, tamas predominates. But the witness of these three is unaffected by tamas, Rajas, Sattva. That's what he says. Gunatita transcends. The consciousness transcends the three gunas. Mm. Then what happens? Nityam. Eternal. You see that the three states come and go. The waking comes and goes away every day. The dream comes and goes away every day. And the deep sleep comes and goes away every day. But the witness neither comes nor goes. The witness consciousness cannot disappear. 
It's not like a light, you throw the switch and it's gone. Why? Because then what would testify to the disappearance of that witness consciousness? Follow this carefully. To, for, to, uh, to admit to the existence of anything, it must be testified to by consciousness. It must be experienced by consciousness. If consciousness itself is to disappear, that disappearance has to be experienced by consciousness to assert that consciousness is no longer there. How will you assert it? Without consciousness. It's logically impossible again. Yes. Question? I'll, uh, there are two questions. Um, for consciousness to disappear, you see, it is eternal. Why is it eternal? Clearly the waking, dreaming and deep sleep cycle. Every day we see that. And you, since you experience waking, dreaming and deep sleep in a continuous succession, you, the experiencer, you don't come and go. The waking, dreaming and deep sleep comes and goes with their contents. So, you, the experiencer, are not subject to coming and going. Hence, eternal. What is non-eternal? That which is born and which dies. Which is created and which is destroyed. Which comes and goes. That's non-eternal. So that's one. But a deeper reason is what I just said. Consciousness, the way we understand it, you cannot even logically speak of its dis disappearance, speak of its destruction. Why? To speak of anything, to assert anything, you require consciousness. So consciousness testifies to the presence or the absence of objects. Whatever comes in front of it, you testify to your presence or absence, to, to the presence or absence of those things. If consciousness itself were to disappear, if it, were, if it was an event, what would testify to its presence or absence? What would testify that, yes, there's no, no more consciousness now? You need consciousness for that. Another so another consciousness. And this other, another in Vedanta, it's the one and the same consciousness. This and the other are created by body and mind. So consciousness cannot disappear. Okay, Bill had a question. All right. The question is, does consciousness require a body? I'll answer that at two levels. One level is the materialist, reductionist, scientific paradigm, where the idea is matter and energy are fundamental. Time, space, matter and energy are fundamental. Matter has organized itself into ever more complex forms, living matter, life, and life has evolved into more sophisticated organisms and they have evolved somehow um, um, through a process of Darwinian evolution, uh, nervous systems and brains. And the brains have generated mind and consciousness. This is the mainstream materialistic point of view. In which case consciousness becomes an epiphenomenon. A product of neurochemical reactions going on in the brain. In that case the question it resolves itself very easily. Does consciousness require a brain? A, a, does consciousness require a body? Obviously because it's a product of the body. It's an epiphenomenon of the body in the materialist reductionist sense. It's like asking, does a flame require a candle? Of course, it's a candle burning which produces the flame. Advaita Vedanta has just the opposite um, uh, take on this. Advaita Vedanta says consciousness is fundamental. A body to exist even requires consciousness. 
that fundamental consciousness. Body requires consciousness to be alive, to exist and to function. You see, the, the difference is like this. From a scientific materialist point of view, consciousness is something that occurs in some bodies. Living body, sophisticated living body, evolved body has consciousness. Consciousness is a property of some bodies. From an Advaitic, Vedantic perspective, a body is something that appears in consciousness. Now, let me ask you a question. Check with your experience right now. Are you a body with consciousness or are you experiencing your, your body in your consciousness? Check right now. Look at your body. Aren't you experiencing this body in your awareness? Don't we say, I am aware of my body? The body and the world appear to you in, in your awareness. It's a whole new, very different way of looking at it. And this has the advantage, to my point of view, of being consistent with our experience. Without violating any kind of scientific approach. Without violating any kind of science. What, what science does it violate? It doesn't go against the science of matter, physics. It doesn't go against the science of biology. It doesn't go against the science of psychology. None of them. All of them are internally consistent, but the only point we are making is all of it appears to you in your consciousness. I will not even say in your consciousness, in you the consciousness. When in Vedanta, at this stage, when we are talking about you, we mean consciousness. We don't mean you, the uh, body-mind complex. We mean the consciousness. So yes. Um, now they seem to be uh, irreconcil irreconcilable, very different. You know, completely different, the two points of view. But here is now, the discussion has come to this point in consciousness studies. The hard problem of consciousness. Where David Chalmers, who is our neighbor here in NYU, is actually speaking of consciousness as fundamental. Vedanta says consciousness is the, the one fundamental thing. Chalmers will not go so far. He says, maybe we have to think of just like time, space, matter and energy are, are fundamentals in our scientific worldview, we might have to think of consciousness as fundamental too, as one of the fundamentals. Yeah. So nitya, eternal, one, ekaha. We have already studied this, that is, is there a separate consciousness in each body and mind or is there one background consciousness? So Vedanta holds that there is one background consciousness. We seem to be separate. Why? Because we, see, we identify ourselves with the body or with the mind. That's why we seem to be separate consciousnesses. Chidatmakaha, pure consciousness. The self which is pure consciousness. So what is this verse? The three states, waking, dreaming and deep sleep, they revolve, they are false, they appear and arise in one notion of consciousness. And that one ocean of consciousness is eternal and one, everywhere. Those three states, waking, dreaming and deep sleep, are made of the three gunas, sattva, rajas and tamas. Whereas the witness consciousness, the witness of these three states, is beyond the three gunas, not touched by them. And that witness consciousness, you are. So, um, 
This is the teaching. Now, what Shankaracharya has done so far is that in the first stage, he showed that we are not the body and mind, we are the witness consciousness, stage one. And stage two, he has now showed that what the, the not-self, the universe which is witnessed by consciousness, that not-self is not apart from the self. So the non-duality of the self has been established, Advaitam. Now what he's going to do is, what seems to be very abstract philosophy, he's going to show from now on, from verse number 59, next verse onwards, till 88, nearly 30 verses, will be full of examples. A wonderful variety of examples will be given to make this clear. Again and again with a variety of examples, what we come across in the world, he'll use those examples to show us what he means when he says, consciousness, you are consciousness, and this consciousness is non-dual. The consciousness alone is real, Brahman is real, and the world which appears to consciousness is just that, an appearance in consciousness. Examples. A lot of examples will be given to make it more and more clear. Let's see. Many of these examples I've used and I actually took it from here. <laughs> so let us see these examples. Some of them. 59. Yadvan mridi ghata bhrantim Yadvan mridi ghata bhrantim Shukta varajata sthitim Shukta varajata sthitim Tadvad brahmani jivatvam Tadvad brahmani jivatvam Vikshamane na pasyati Vikshamane na pasyati As there is the delusion of uh, a pot in clay of silver in nacre, mother of pearl. Just like that, there's a delusion of an individual being, Jiva, in Brahman, the infinite consciousness. Upon examination, Ikshamani, upon investigation. Now this bears some explanation. Look at what he said, something shocking. Just as there's the delusion that there is a pot. There's no pot, there's only clay. You will say, what do you mean? I can see the pot. There's this big, fat, round pot in front of you in the table. How can you say there's no pot? A clay pot. He says, as there is a delusion of a pot in clay. Now, take the pot and examine it. Take a close look at it. It's made of clay. Where is the clay? The top of it is clay. The bottom of it is clay. In middle it is clay, inside it's clay, outside it's clay. In fact, it's clay through and through. If you examine the pot carefully, what will you find? Clay. When you touch it, what do you touch? Clay. Apart from that clay, follow this carefully. Apart from that clay, is there a thing called a pot? A substance called a pot? So, Swami, you're holding it. But what are you really holding? The clay. If you think that there is a thing called a pot, something called a pot, then I'll say, keep the pot, give me the clay. <laughs> you cannot. Because there is no such second thing called a pot. Remember, as we studied earlier, the experience of pot continues. You continue to see the pot. Even if after you understand that it is a pot, you, it, is a, it is clay. You continue to see the pot. You can still keep water or milk in it.
you you need not stop using it empirical uses usage vyavahara you can keep you can call it a pot you can use it as a pot you can refer to it as a pot all that continues but you realize it's clay through and through and it's a fact exactly like that in you the pure consciousness this entire universe seems to be real there is no such universe apart from you the consciousness you pure the pure consciousness apart from brahman there is no such uh, first he says jiva there is no such thing as an individual being this person you consider yourself the jiva the person swami so and so mr so and so mrs so and so this person that person does not exist apart from the consciousness the real you from apart from brahman there is no jiva there is no sen- no sentient being you can examine it just now think about it this way suppose i have an accident and i lose um a hand do i exist yes i exist i am this uh, miserable guy who lost a hand but i am unhappy but i exist i know myself as a guy who had both hands now i have got only one hand i lost the one other one if i lose so that's a part of the body even if you lose different parts of the body still exist i still exist if i lose different parts of the body there was this um, experiment which i haven't checked it out they're supposed to perform the first world's head transplant they performed it is this person still alive i don't know you might ask which person if you tra- transfer the head yes they were actually supposed to perf- and it it was uh, i thought it was a hoax but it's in uh, uh, in, in the atlantic or somewhere there was a whole article about it it seems they performed it but i don't know if they have performed it should, it would be it would have made world worldwide news yeah they would be talking about it full body transplant yes so just the head you can say the head was transplanted from one body to another or you can say the body was <laughs> right so i could just be the head without a body yes yeah. it has been carried out yeah. but it would have made tremendous news all over the world i don't s- yes uh, all right uh, all right <laughs> from the, the, the uh, anyway my point is my point is that uh, i'm making a philosophical point here technically whether that's possible or not uh, it could very well be possible if they are going 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 ahead with it but technically the point is i'm still the same person with a new body maybe same head with a new body all right let's go deeper my thoughts memories i could lose quite a bit of my memories and i could still be i am aware that i've lost me i can't remember many things i could i could even have amnesia about my own name but i would still be there as an aware entity who does not remember his own name right but suppose the awareness is not there consciousness is not there what remains in my life in my experience i'm asking you nothing it's like a switch has been thrown suppose make a philosophical experiment in your mind the consciousness which shines upon the mind and the body body may function or part of it may be destroyed mind may function a part of it may be destroyed memories may be there maybe you'll forget If you remember you will say i the awareness can recall certain things if you forget you will say i the awareness cannot recall certain things but if the awareness is not there what remains the body no 
You say, but Swami, the body remains. Yes, to you. But to that person? To that person? No experience of a body. The mind? No experience of a mind. Without consciousness, without awareness, that person does not exist. So it, what they are saying here is, just like that, like there is no thing called a pot, follow this carefully, no substance, no thing, no object called a pot, other than the clay, there is no person, there is no jiva, other than Brahman. Brahman means pure consciousness, existence consciousness, please. You do not exist except Brahman, as a pot does not exist except clay. Big claim. Let me, let me do the other example, there are already two hands up. Good, hold on to the question. Let me do the other example. Alright, three hands. The other example is, Shukti Rajata. Shukti is nacre. You know what is nacre? Mother of pearl. On the beach you find sometimes some mollusks have this shell which is iridescent, which shines in sunlight. From a distance it looks like silver. So the example, classic example in Sanskrit is a person gets fooled by, thinks it's silver. Let me go and <coughs> collect. There's so much silver on the beach. Let me go and collect the silver. But turns out it's not there. That false silver... Silver born of error has no existence apart from the, the mother of pearl, that nacre. In the same way, you the person, you have no existence apart from Brahman. Just as that pot is through and through clay, you are through and through pure consciousness. Just as that, that, that silver, so-called silver, is nothing but the nacre. The so-called person, you, are nothing but Brahman. It's a good thing. You are the absolute eternal Brahman. Let's see the questions. All right. You, ha you had your hand up first. I thought another question from you. All right. Ask. Example. Mm -hmm. So these two examples are slightly different. Yes. Because the first one talks about the substance, something that's made of. Yeah. But the second one is like the snake and the bird. Yes. Right. Okay. I'm glad you asked that question. I would have brought it up later also. The question she asked is for, for the benefit of our internet audience. By the way, from this uh, session onwards, it's going to be uploaded. Um, two kinds of examples. She said, look at the two examples they just gave. One was clay and pot. One example. The other one was um, nacre and silver. But the two examples are not the same. Immediately what our attention goes to is, the clay was shaped into a pot with an effort by um, some uh, potter. And you call it a pot, and it's not wrong to call it a pot. Not only that, you can use it to hold water or your flowers or milk or whatever. Whereas, the nacre never became silver. It was just mistaken as silver. It's in fact even wrong to call it silver. And you cannot use it as silver. Alright? There's a difference. This often creates confusion. That's why in Advaita Vedanta, one thing to remember is how to use an example. An example is always used to prove one point, And only one point. And you must know that it's the teacher's job to tell you what is the point being made here. The point is not that Brahman is shaped into a person. 
Neither that there is a um, person appearing erroneously in Brahman. No, no, no. Neither, neither of these points. The one common thing between the two examples is what? The only reality of the pot is clay. The only reality of the silver is nacre. The only reality about you is pure existence consciousness. The substance there is clay. The substance here of that erroneous silver is the nacre. The, the reality is nacre. The reality about you is pure consciousness. Everything that else a, that appears is a projection, is, a, is an appearance of maya made of three, three gunas. It's, it's not real. It's like a dream. The reality of everything that you see in a dream, everything that you see in a dream, every person, building, every occurrence, everything good, everything bad in a dream, what's the reality of that? What's the only thing that's real there? The dreamer's mind. Hmm. Right? So exactly in that sense. There was another question there. Yes. Consciousness originates. Okay, you want me to comment on that? Yeah. All right. So the question was that uh, recent, in a recent article, it is said that in Harvard they have they seem to have pinpointed the location of uh, consciousness. Now remember, in modern consciousness studies, scientific consciousness studies, when they refer to consciousness, the word is very ambiguous. They are they have multiple connotations of the word consciousness. In Vedanta, it's very clear what they mean by consciousness. Yeah. In Vedanta, anything that you experience, the object of your experience, is not consciousness. That which experiences it is consciousness. Okay. Now, in modern consciousness studies, what are the different meanings of consciousness? Conscious behavior is consciousness. Talking is consciousness. Thinking is consciousness, memory is consciousness, language is consciousness. These are all examples of consciousness. Vedanta would, would say you are using a very blunt tool here. You are mixing up the activities of the body with consciousness. You are mixing up the activities of the prana with consciousness. You are mixing up the activities of the mind with consciousness. You are mixing up the activities of intellect with consciousness. You are mixing up the activities of the memory with consciousness. Mind, memory, intellect, body language, all of them are objective. Why? They can be experienced. The real consciousness is that which is experiencing all of these. Right. Having said that, so the paradigm still is in consciousness studies, what they're desperately trying to do is to find, is to somehow reduce consciousness to the brain. So they'll be only to, they'd be most happy if the whole phenomenon of consciousness goes away and you're all zombies, you're proved to be zombies. <laughs> They'd be most happy. That solves the problem. But if they have to show that consciousness, the, the easiest way to, sh to, uh, to solve the problem of consciousness in modern consciousness studies is to show that somehow the brain generates consciousness. So they'll be looking for places 
where if that is functioning, then the person displays conscious behavior. What Vedanta would say is that maybe you have found something in the brain which is linked to the functioning of consciousness, linked to the functioning of consciousness and mind. You know, some psychological activity depends on that particular place, the neuronal activity there. It's more like, it's somewhat like, you walk through the door. All of you have walked through the door. Now somebody watching that would say that the door produces a lot of people. <laughs> I have found the source of all these people. It's the door. <laughs> yes. Whenever they are here, they come through that door. They will not say they come through the door. The door produces them. If the door doesn't produce them, there's nobody. So the door is the source of all these people. But door is just a gateway. And according to Vedanta, consciousness exists well before the brain. Consciousness is prior to the mind also. Consciousness interacts with the mind, the mind interacts with the brain. But it's not that this, these studies are without value for Vedanta. They are very valuable for Vedanta. Because at one point, they might come into some understanding of mind-brain interaction. Consciousness-mind interaction is even further. Further back, more fundamental. But mind-brain inter interaction, because what is the mind so far, they have no grasp on the, the whole thing. They would be happy if there were no minds. <laughs> yeah. Only brains without minds would solve the problem for, for, for science. Mind and consciousness are just messing up the whole thing for science. What Vedanta says, all your science and your neuroscience and Harvard and pinpointing consciousness are in consciousness. The whole problem of consciousness appears to consciousness. And an attempt to solve it is an attempt in consciousness. And any solution that appears will be in consciousness. Note that consciousness is prior to all of that. Okay, that's the answer. Uh, yes? Yes. Yes. But in a relative world, I want to know how would Advaita physics apply. Uh, in a relative world, would you say that the waking state is more real than the dream state? All right. Good question. The question is that from an absolute standpoint, neither the waking nor dreaming nor deep sleep are absolutely real in because they do not exist apart from consciousness, just as a pot does not exist apart from clay. But in a relative sense. Would you say that the waking world is more real than the dream world? Advaita Vedanta would say yes. Yes. Why? Because when you wake up from dreams into this waking world, forget Vedanta, when you wake up every day, what do you say? Oh, that was a dream. I mean, you would say, thank God, that was just a nightmare, it didn't happen. Or you would say, oh, that was a dream, I wish it had happened, it didn't happen. When you say it's a dream or a nightmare, basically what you mean is, I have woken up into reality that was imagined. So you have this cognition, a sense of correction. Exactly like the snake rope or the nacre and silver. When you go near that and you say that, oh, it's not a snake, it's a rope. Then you would say, would you say that the snake is less real and the rope is more real? Yes. Would you say that the nacre is more real and the silver is less real? Yes. 
Would you say the waking is more real and the dream less real? Yes. Having said that, I will deny the whole thing now. <laughs> there is another way. There are different ways of looking at Advaita. There are different levels of Advaita. What I just said, one grade of reality is dreaming, a lower grade of reality is, a higher grade of reality is waking, and the highest grade of reality is Brahman. That is um, Advaita 101, basic Advaita. There is a more advanced form of Advaita, which is, which has two states of reality, not three states of reality. Notice that we have talked about three states of reality. Dream is one state. Dream, silver naked, rope snake, one state, one kind of reality. Higher reality than that, waking. The rope itself, the naked itself, the ground of illusion. That's the second, the higher state of reality. Higher than that, Brahman. So three states of reality. That's one way of looking at Advaita. There is a more advanced form of Advaita which takes a look at two states of reality. They don't consider waking, dreaming and deep sleep. They say there are only two states, dreaming and sleep. Waking is also a dream, dream is also a dream. And there's another stage in which, which is deep sleep. There are only two states and the reality is beyond them both. That's a witness of these two states. They equate waking and dreaming. They equate waking and dreaming. Uh, you'd say, wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah, um, it, it, they, they do that and they have, uh, they have arguments. I will not run through them right now. Um, if you're interested, Swami Nikhilananda's translation of the Upanishads, where the, the volume in which he has translated Mandukya Upanishad, which is the classic text for waking, dreaming, deep sleep. He has, he has an appendix where he takes up objections, 10 objections, you wouldn't even think about them, which, sep which, which are against equating dreaming and, and waking. And you say, no, waking is waking and dream is dream. Because of these objections, I will not allow you to equate them. 10 objections. And one by one, he knocks down each objection till you get this very weird, creepy feeling that this could also be, am I in the matrix? Uh, is this a dream? You actually, the 10 arguments, and he knocks them all down. So that's the second kind of Advaita. Even that's intermediate. That's not really advanced Advaita. There's an even more advanced Advaita. Uh, we, so the second kind of Advaita says, whatever you experience is a dream. And the absence and, and the experience of blankness is sleep. And the reality is beyond sleep and dream. Beyond this, there's another kind of Advaita, which is called Ajatavada, non-creationism. The teaching of Shankaracharya's Guru's Guru, Gaudapadacharya, that we will see in Mandukya Upanishad, hopefully sometime. Where, if you say, this world is true or this world is false, their reply will be, what world? <laughs> there is only Brahman. You see, this world, see, no, this is not a world, this is the shining forth of Brahman. One Swami in Uttarakhand was interviewed, and there's a story in Prabuddhavarta, in one of our journals, they said that, the Swami said, there is no world at all. Brahman alone exists. No question of dream and maya and three gunas, none of this. Brahman alone is the reality. Then somebody asked, but Swami, you, this world is there. You can see yourself. You can see the world. What do you say to this? And the Swami said, oh, this. The Hindi term was, ye to Brahma ki lap hai. This is the shining forth of Brahman. Like the flame flickers. The same way it's like, the, it's a poetic way of putting it. This is the flickering of Brahman. 
There's only one reality. There's not one reality and a, and a falsity. It's just one reality. Um, so that's the last form of uh, Advaita. Uh, but we, we are taking our stand on much more safer ground. And I say yes. If you think the dream is a reality, waking is a greater reality, I'll say yes. I agree with you. I'm, I'm okay with you on that. The Holy Mother, I'll come to you. The Holy Mother, she seems to favor the second one. In, uh, in, a, in a dialogue with Swami Arupananda, which you find, she says, my child, this is also a dream. And the Swami objected. He said, how can this be a dream? Every day you dream, you go into a different dream world. Those things come and go. But you wake up into this world. This world is more stable. Right? When you wake up your car and your house and your... So he says, you wake up into the world. The waking world is stable. How can this be a dream? She didn't go into Advaita dialectics and arguments. She burst out laughing and she said, be that as it may, my child. It is nothing more than a dream. Bill has a comment, yes. So how about Dr. Johnson's argument of kicking the stone and saying that uh, thus does Yes, he's referring to Dr. Johnson and Bishop Berkeley in Subjective Idealism. Bishop Berkeley said, it's all in my mind, right? And Dr. Johnson is reputed to have kicked the stone and said, thus I refute your Subjective Idealism. But the whole thing could be in the mind also. In your dream also you can kick a stone and feel pain. A dream stone with your dream foot and feel the dream pain. Right? The whole thing is based on consciousness. Uh, let me just go ahead a little bit because we have almost run out of time. Upon examination, vikshamani, upon examination, the person does not exist. It's Brahman alone. Pot is a name given to a, a particular form of clay. In the same way, a person, jiva, it's a name. The substance is Brahman. In the same way, let us look at verse number 60. Yatham ridi ghato nama Yatham ridi ghato nama Kanake kundala bhidha Kanake kundala bhidha Shukto hi rajatakhyati Shukta hi rajata khyati Jeeva shabda sthathapare Jeeva shabda sthathapare It is name alone. What does he say? Just as pot is a name given to clay. That particular bit of clay. Just as earring. Kundala is earring I think. The ear ring. Ear ring. Is a name given to gold. That particular form, in, that ornament made of gold. What's the reality there? The reality is gold. There's no such thing as an earring. You'll say, what do you mean? I paid so much for the earring. You paid for the gold. So, the earring is nothing other than a name given to that, that piece of gold. Just as silver is nothing other than a name given to that erroneous perception of nature. In the same way, Jiva, individual sentient being, is a name given to Brahman. To that absolute reality. We have given a name being here. It's a name. It's, this is actually based on Chandogya Upanishad, 
there is no thing called a pot there is no thing called an ornament there is no thing called an iron implement apart from the clay apart from the gold apart from the iron then what is a pot it's a name alone what's a an earring it's a name alone and an use and a form but no substance no reality behind it nama avacharambhanam it is a based on um, in, in this the language used in chandogya upanishad based on linguistic usage you see what is being said here is very interesting if you use words then they mean something right if you use words then they mean something when i say when i use three names book mike clock book mike clock how many names have i used three here's a book here's a mike here's a clock how many objects are there one two and three okay now look at the strange situation pot clay how many names did i use two how many objects are there how many objects are there one yes there is no separate object answering to the word name pot there is something answering to the name clay but there is no distinct object answering to the to the uh, name pot you'll say that that's it that's the pot but you're looking you're touching the clay you're pointing to the clay i can show you the clay separate from the pot can you show me the pot separate from the clay you cannot this is the strange thing that advaita points out it's an enchantment created by language it's a spell woven by words maya works through language the claim being made here is tremendous unthinkable we know what it's saying you are god right here right now always where you are always will be you just don't know it you don't re- you see the important thing here is to understand the characteristic of this absolute reality the definition of that reality what do you mean by brahman we are using the word brahman we are using the word absolute we are using the word pure consciousness once you understand what is meant by that it will become blazingly obvious that i am that i was and all of us are and we will continue to be and that solves all of our problems but it just that we don't recognize it's like a person goes to the forest in search of a cow now it is essential that the person knows what a cow is otherwise even if the person finds the cow what will happen he won't know that it has found he has found it he won't know that that that, uh, that this is a cow or or might be in great doubt is this the cow because the person doesn't know what he has found sri ramakrishna gave an example it, it's a it's a mind blowing concept if you just know this enlightenment is instantaneous here and now we are free forever sri ramakrishna gave a very wonderful example there was this washerman and he stumbled upon a shiny stone and it's a nice stone very shiny it's actually a huge diamond but he didn't know so he used it to scrub his clothes which he was washing one day he thought it's very nice and i've never seen a stone like this let me take it to my friend who's a vegetable seller he might know a little more than me 
So he takes him to the vegetable cellar, to take that piece of stone to the vegetable uh, cellar. And the vegetable seller looks at it and he says, yeah, this is a weird piece of stone and I like it. I'll give you a bag full of potatoes or brinjals for it. Something worth 10 rupees maybe. And the man was not satisfied, the washerman. He said, let me take it to the, the jeweler. And finally the story is that finally goes to a diamond merchant who sees this and he says, my God, this is fantastic. It's the most perfect, biggest diamond I've ever seen. I'll give you 10 million rupees for it. Now, that same piece of stone which the washerman had and he thought it, it's, all that it's good for is scrubbing clothes. The vegetable th seller thought it's good for a bag of potatoes or brinjals or I'll give you 10 rupees for it. <clears throat> and the person who really knows what it is, is willing to give 10 million rupees for it. It's really worth 10 million rupees because the person has understood what it is. We have that right now. But we are unfortunately like that, uh, that washerman. We have got that Brahman, pure consciousness, existence, consciousness and bliss right here. But what we are, are we doing? We are using it um, to walk and talk and earn money and be miserable and hate people and fight wars and... Uh, uh, and lead our lives and think that we are growing old, that think that we are uh, diseased and think that we will die. I'm lonely, I'm unhappy, I hate you. <laughs> this, this is what we are using it. I think the washerwoman used, uh, the washerman used it for b better <laughs> than we are using. We are using this infinite consciousness which is the mine of infinite bliss. We are using it to make ourselves perfectly miserable. Why? The answer given by Vedanta is Maya. Yeah. It's right here. And Vedanta is like that diamond merchant who will point out what you have already got. Vedanta will not give you anything new. You've already got it. it the washerman's drishti, view, viewpoint, paradigm about the stone changed completely. It's the most valuable thing that I've ever got in my life. Anybody in our, in our family or in our uh, whole community has ever got. Even a dealer in diamonds has never seen such a diamond. Exactly like that, what we have already got, Vedanta introduces us to it. We don't recognize it because we don't know the characteristics of what we are looking for. We've got it right now. Anybody who has ever been enlightened, who has ever found God, found it in the here and now, found it and said that it's not that I have found something new. It was always there. The enlightened person finds God everywhere in everything, in every action, in, is always in place. It does not say, my God is here and my God is not here. No. That person is not fully enlightened. Pratibodhaviditamatam. In every experience of life, if you find Brahman, you are enlightened. How is that possible? What is common to every experience of life? To waking, dreaming and deep sleep? Consciousness. You are it. We don't recognize it. And hence disaster befalls us. If you recognize it, if you would just... Vedanta introduces you to yourself. If you would just recognize you, yourself as what you truly are. Vivekananda would say with, with pathos. If only you knew, knew yourself as you truly are. It would solve all your problems. There's a story about how 
Um, many years ago, do you remember Gen General uh, Colin Powell? Is the chief of staff of the armed forces. Um, he was in England at that time. And he saw, he was traveling through, but he saw that Professor Stephen Hawking was going to give a talk in one, an, an English town. It's a real story, it seems. Um, and so he said, I want to see that. And he told, he has his numerous military people, aides, a range of play, uh, a flight for me, we'll, I'll go there and attend the talk. And they rushed to the airport, we'll get our tickets somehow. The flight which will make it to the, that town within, in time to, get, to hear the talk, it's fully booked. And that lady who was at the counter, she was overwhelmed. She saw all these people with all their medals and, uh, and very important looking military people. And they are, they're telling her, you must get the general on that plane. He has to hear a talk by uh, Professor Stephen Hawking. It's most important. You have to get the general on the plane. And the poor lady, what could she do? She said, I'll do my best, sir. And she sees all these very important looking military people crowding around her. And she says, okay, I'll bump one passenger off the plane and put him on the next flight and you go. So the general goes and goes there. When he reaches that place, they say, I'm sorry, sir, we have to cancel the talk. Why? Stephen Hawking couldn't make, him, make it because he was bumped off the flight. <laughs> because this poor lady didn't know who Stephen Hawking was. She saw this weird and unimportant, sickly-looking guy on a wheelchair. You can go later. You can go on the next flight. The general has to go first. Apparently, it's a true story. I heard it in a, in a management case presentation. Uh, now, not recognizing. Yeah, not recognizing what happened. Introducing you to yourself. That's all that Vedanta does. I'll end with a little story. It's a story, one of those beautiful little stories which the Swamis in the Himalayas have. Um, what, what does Vedanta do? It's like this. Again, a washerman. This washerman has a donkey and he loads all the clothes on the donkey and goes to the river, river bed. If you've seen washermen in India do that, you could, they will take the clothes there and unload the clothes and wash the clothes and dry the clothes. And they tie the donkey to a nearby tree. And when the clothes are dry, they'll pack it up, load it on the donkey, untie the donkey, go back home. Now this um, washerman unloaded the clothes and I was about to go to the river. Then he saw I had forgotten to get the rope for the donkey. He said, oh my God, it's a disaster. What if the donkey wanders off and lose the donkey? And so he's in all of a flutter. What do I do now? And then this gentleman is passing by. He sees the, uh, the washerman in a quandary and asks, what's wrong? This is the problem. The gentleman said, don't worry. Take the donkey to the tree and go through the motions of tying it to the tree. Show it that you're tying it to the tree. The donkey is used to being tied to the tree. So he does that. And he goes through the motions of tying it to the tree. And, the donkey, and to his amazement, when he's washing the clothes, he looks back nervously and sees the donkey just munching grass and standing right there. Exactly in the spot where it's supposed to stand. It's been standing for, the, for years together. Just there. Creature of habit. He's very happy. And then he loads the clothes back after a day of washing and drying and puts in the donkey and tells the donkey, you know, he gives the command, move. And donkey doesn't move. Move. And donkey just shakes its head and doesn't move. And this man thinks that maybe that gentleman um, did some magic on my donkey. He runs to the gentleman's house and says, this is the problem. What do I do? The donkey's not moving. And the gentleman said, just pretend to untie it. Show, show the donkey that you're untying it. 
He said, okay, that's great. He comes back and in front of the donkey, he very ostentatiously, you know, like uh, unties it and shows the donkey, yeah, you're free now. Move. And the donkey moves. <laughs> we are in no better condition than the donkey. <laughs> you are Brahman. Always were, are and always will be. You are ever free. Nothing in this universe can ever destroy you. You have imagined yourself that you are tied to this tree of samsara. And you behave exactly that as if you are bound to this body and mind. You react as if you are a body. You react as if you are a mind. Who, who is the you who reacts? Consciousness. With the body and mind. Completely forgotten that you are the free, ever free consciousness. But you react as if this samsara is real. And I am this body and mind in this samsara struggling to make my way. And this little body, immediately you have a vast universe of millions of light years and billions of stars and galaxies. It will come later that all, it says, the universes, it talks about a multiverse, it will come in a verse next. They are all imagined in you, the pure consciousness. The moment you tie yourself to a body, you become a tiny speck of matter in a vast ocean of matter. The moment you tie yourself to your thoughts, you become a stream, delicate stream of thought, prone to being wounded and pleased and made miserable by the slightest, by a word. Vivekananda says, slave to a good word, slave to a nasty word. Uh, we are bound by, by a little bit of happiness, slave to a little bit of happiness, slave to a little bit of misery. We, are, we have enslaved ourselves. We have tied ourselves like that donkey. And what Vedanta does is nothing more than going through the motions of untying the donkey and showing you that you are free. Yes. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu